into the promised land in boundless love and mercy. Good afternoon. Uh, look forward to seeing you, and thank you for showing up. Uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> pick up our study in Mark on chapter 8. This is a busy chapter, and uh, we got a lot of things in here. Hopefully, uh, we can get through it in, in our time frame. If not, we'll pick it up next time. But uh, if you turn to, to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to talk about the 4,000, feeding of 4,000. This also is in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Now, in this chapter, in those days, uh, when, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, the, the 2020 versions. It may read a little different from yours. In those days when there was nothing, pardon me, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus summoned His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with Me for three days already and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And His disciples replied to Him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And He was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to recline on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he told the disciples to serve these as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. There was about 4,000 men, and he dismissed them. Now, let's go back and look at this in detail. Uh, the first thing I notice when I look at this is it says, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for three days and have nothing to eat. Now, depending on what translation that you read, it indicates that they've been there three days and they have no food. Now, did they not have food when they, when they got there? I don't know. Some translations seem to indicate that. But, this, but regardless, something's going on with Jesus because He's saying, if I let them go, they're going to faint on the way home. So, I think they've been there three days without food. Now think about this for a minute. We live in a society, and I, I traveled for a living for 35 years, and when I would travel up in the northeast and the south, all over the old confederacy and everywhere, I'd travel. If I was there on a Sunday, I'd go find a Methodist church, and I'd go to church there. And almost Everyone I ever went to. The church service starts at 11. We sang three hymns. We did the announcements. Somebody sang a special song, and by that time, it's 11.30. At 11.30 sharp, the pastor speaks. 
20 minutes. At the end of his time, they have some some local thing that happened, and then they have a prayer and everybody's out at noon. I can tell you that's happened in, in more churches than I care to admit. My, I was even up in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire in a Methodist church that had a, a building that had been there for hundreds of years. Stone building is an incredible building. And I go in there and the pastor says, well, now today we're going to learn why the muskrat lost his tail. And I, no wonder we have people that are biblically illiterate and ignorant. But not these people here with Jesus. Not this group. They stayed there three days. Now, if you got kids and you know there were kids there, maybe this 4,000, let's give them uh, a nuclear family. So there's mom and dad. That's 8,000. And you got two kids per family. That's another 8,000. So maybe they got sixteen to 20,000 people there. Okay? Now, they don't have food for three days. How do you deal with kids that don't eat for three days? I don't know that that happened, but it seems to indicate that that could have happened. But even so, let's just assume they ate for two days and they didn't have any food the third day. Kids are going to get hungry. And yet, these people made the commitment. They made what, what we call a quality decision. A quality decision is a decision that you make from which there is no retreat, about which there's no discussion. So they made the decision, we're going to hear this guy. Okay? So they do. And you'll go back to the feeding of 5,000 over here in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6. Um, in verse 37 in Mark chapter 6, uh, the disciples had wanted him to go out in the, in the wilderness and, and, you know, send him over to 7-Eleven and send him down to the mall to get something to eat at the food court, you know. And uh, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And in the, in the Gospel of John, he says, you give them something to eat because he knew what he was going to do. It was a test. So, in this case right here, you give them something to eat. Well, they don't have the ability to do that. Uh, they they comment that they don't have enough money to do that. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? Seven. How many fish? Got the fish out. A few small fish. And he told his disciples to serve them as well. Jesus blessed them, served them as well. Now, I don't know how that happened. I've, I've read from Heidi Baker how things like that happened in Mozambique. They had a kitchen area and people just kept showing up. They'd go get the food and bring it out. When it run out, they'd go back. There's more food. They just they just kept going and there'd be more food. I don't know what happened here, but I just know that Jesus told them, what was the word? The word was, you give them something to eat. Okay, That's Jesus' word. You remember the parable of the sower. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where Satan comes immediately to steal the word. So, He's given them that. What he doesn't tell them is, I'll create the food, you give them something to eat. So they do that. Now, in verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, demanding him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Now, when I read that, I just want to go, well, duh. Where's the test? What 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 miracle beyond feeding four thousand people, four thousand men, with some fish from a sack lunch? What what other kind of miracle do you want to see? That's the question, and um, they don't have an answer. Verse, uh, go back up to verse twelve. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, "Why does this generation demand a sign?" Why do you want a sign? Uh, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side. He didn't answer the question. It's a stupid question. And, and you know, we've got 2020 hindsight. We can look back on this from so many years. And we go, how could you possibly ask that question there? I don't know. But they did, and Jesus didn't answer it. He basically walked away from them. Now, in verse 16, well, actually, let's go back up to verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, of course, leaven, you take a little bit of it and put it in, a, in, in dough, and you know, you got a, a loaf of bread. It, it spreads throughout the dough. Now, in this case, he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We could define that as religious yeast and political yeast. Okay, all it takes is just a little bit of yeast to to leaven the whole dough. All you need is just a little bit of religious teaching that has not got the scripture involved, and you keep fiddling with it, and you keep listening to it, and all of a sudden that takes over your thought patterns. Okay, he's telling them, watch out for the religious people, watch out for the religious side of things. Then he tells them the same thing with Herod. Now. One of the things that's interesting in here, uh, and I mentioned this before, uh, Jesus was very astute politically, and he confronted Herod. This is Herod Antipas, is in the area that he's that he's talking about, where up in Galilee and so forth. Uh, and there was uh, there was three Herod brothers that he had that he dealt had to deal with at some time, Archelaus, which his area was taken over by Pontius Pilate. Then you had Herod Antipas, and then you had Philip, which was Herod's brother, which, as you know, his wife, Herodias, uh, divorced Philip to marry Herod, and it ended up getting John the Baptist killed because he spoke truth to power. Now, having said this, he's telling you, watch out for the leaven of Herod. It's the, the, the thing that he doesn't want us to do is to get involved in politics to the point that we begin to rely on them as a result of our answer. We're certainly involved in politics. We vote. In the United States, we've got to deal with a lot of issues going on right now. But we're certainly involved in politics, but we don't let politics be the number one source of our, of our information. We don't let it be the number one thing that we're concerned about because the Lord said don't do that. So that's, we're going to set that aside. Now, verse 16 
After he told them, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, beside the Pharisees asking them for a sign after he fed 4,000, how could these guys possibly be concerned about not having bread when they picked up seven baskets of food left over? I This one is a is a is a head scratcher. Uh, and again, I don't have an answer. Um, I wish I knew. Well, Jesus deals with it here briefly. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Now look what he says. This because this is really crucial. Do you not comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, this isn't that far away from the 4,000 being fed. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, and I'd, I'd, I'd tell you to read this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, uh, Moses tells people, make sure you remember so you can teach it to your kids and they'll know what these things are for. So that the children will be educated in the ways of God. And in this case here, he's asking, don't you remember what I just did? And he's getting on them because they said they didn't have the ability to understand. I broke five loaves for the 5,000. How many baskets did you have left over? Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets did you pick up? Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Now, taking this into consideration, one of the quickest lesson I can take out of that is Jesus said, If I did it once, I can do it again. And the fact that you guys are in the boat and I'm with you should not make you worry about anything to eat. But they did. And he said that they had a hardened heart. Now, what is a hardened heart? What, what is it? How does a hardened heart keep them from doing this? It's because they don't allow the word. Remember the four kinds of soil? You had the soil by the wayside. You had rocky soil. You had thorny soil. And you had good soil. These guys are rocky soil right now. They're putting the seed out there, but it's not sticking. Birds are coming and eating it up. Satan's stealing the word from them because they don't understand. Okay? Now, let's move on and look at uh, verse 21. He said to them, Do you not yet understand? Now, at this point, you can go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 52, and I, I mark this down. After the 5,000, he said to them, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Two different situations. Both of them said they had hardened hearts. We've got to avoid that. You go to Hebrews, it talks about that they were God was displeased with them in the desert because they had hardened hearts. Now, go on from that. To, let's go to verse uh, 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a man who was blind to Jesus. 
and begged to touch him. Now, Bethsaida is an interesting place. Capernaum was here. And if, if you look on a map, Capernaum's here, Bethsaida's over here. Now, Capernaum was in Herod, Archel- uh, Herod Antipas's political jurisdiction. Bethesda, or Bethsaida, is in Philip's jurisdiction. What you find is, is that when, the, uh, when the he gets put on Jesus over in Herod's territory, he goes to Philip. That's why you see him a lot of time. he's over in Bethesda. He's getting over to Philip. Now, Philip's not going to give him any trouble because they're after, if, if you know, this is the old, uh, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, you know, Herod's hot after Jesus. And Philip, Herod's already stolen his wife. So Philip, you know, well, sure, come over. He's not going to bother him over there. So he's got a place of safety in Bethesda. Bethesda, pardon me. Not Maryland is Bethesda. Uh, anyway, now they brought him a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting in his eyes, again, we've got more spit in his eyes. And laying his hands on him, he said, "Do you see anything?" Now this is reminiscent of what he did to this other guy. He laid hands on him spit the ground and touched his tongue with the saliva. Here, he said he spit in his eyes. Now, how did that happen? You go to Jesus for healing. He lays hands on you and spits in your eye? I don't know. Did he do that? says he did. Would that not freak people out today? Talk about cancel culture. Uh, that guy would be in trouble big time if they do that today. Maybe that's one of the problems we have. It says, uh, taking the man who was blind, he brought him out after spitting his eyes. Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see people for I see them like trees walking around. This guy was not blind from birth because he wouldn't know what a tree would look like. But it's, So apparently he's gone blind since he was then and he recognizes a tree. So he says, I see people walking around and they look like trees. So, Jesus looked intently and laid his hands on his eyes and he began to see everything clearly. So, this is another example of where Jesus heals a guy. It's interesting that this spitting has produced two, two blind eyes to see. Or, or one guy was deaf and then one guy was blind. Spitting has produced this. Now, was it the spit that did it? If Jesus did that today, people would be grabbing his spit and they'd making little bottles of it and saying, you know, send us $25 and we'll send you a bottle of Jesus' spit. Uh, guaranteed to heal. That's what they would say. That's the religious leaven that we were talking about earlier. Now, and it, verse 26, and, and again, this is an interesting thing to tell the guy. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Sent him to his home, but apparently he must have lived on the outside of the, of the city. He sent him to home. Don't even enter the village. Now, let me ask you a couple questions of that.
What is the purpose of spitting on his eyes? Who could tell me what the purpose was of spitting in his eyes? I go back to John 5, 19 and 30, and I say, that's because he said, I only do what I see the Father do, and I only speak what the Father speaks. This is what he saw the Father do. And he didn't care if it was sanitary, he didn't care if it was nice, he didn't care if it was anything. He just did what the Father told him to do. And what happened, the guy said. Now, I ask you this, if the, if, you know, how confident are you in hearing God that you heard that spit in his eyes? Would you do that? That's a question that you better know if you're hearing from the Lord. We work, we're here teaching with Rick Bonfim's ministry, and Rick's done some strange things over the years. I don't know if he's spit on anybody or not, but if there's anybody I know that would, it would be Rick. And people get healed. All kinds of. of he tells one story about where he threw a bucket of water on a guy on stage uh, at the behest of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit broke out in the congregation. All kinds of things happened. But it was just because Rick had enough courage to do what he heard the Lord do. As strange as that sounds, throws water on the guy on stage and boom, the Holy Spirit showed up. Now, let's go down to... Uh, Verse 27. After he'd done this, Jesus goes out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questions his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? You're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But then he says, But who do you say that I am? Two questions. Very important that people need to answer, and they will answer them at some point in time, whether here in the in the resurrection, whatever. Who do you say that I am? Peter got it right. He answered him, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." That's the right answer. Now, this is so interesting to me, and he warned them not to tell anyone. Again, he's doing things, and he's letting his disciples know. And in this case. It's not a guy. It's, the other guy wasn't his disciple. He was just somebody that he healed his eye. But he said he wandered around. He, he warned him not to tell anyone about him. Okay? Now, verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. There's no parable involved here. He's just telling them flat out. This is what's going to happen to me in the near future. Peter, and I, I, I put a note here, this makes sense to me that he said this from his perspective, took him aside and began to rebuke him because Peter thinks he's got the answers. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Well, we can't have Christ, the Son of God, being killed on my watch. That's, that's kind of what he's saying here. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter... And said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes. If you turn over to uh, Colossians 3, you'll see that we're, we're told to keep our mind on the things of God. Keep your mind on those things. Uh, but here Peter, here Peter has two things going on. One was revealed to him by his father. The other one, Satan's working on him. Same Peter, got two different things working on him. 
this happens to us. Uh, this is how Satan works. You get something from God, he comes in and tries to steal it or, or add to it. This is the, the religious Pharisees. Oh, you shouldn't do this because it doesn't fit our, our, uh, our scheme. It doesn't fit what we think ought to happen. Now, um, Jesus made this comment, and I want to ask you this. He began to say, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Why would He suffer? I'm just asking you. Why would He suffer? What would be the reason that Jesus, Peter, or any of these guys would suffer? Paul's a good example. And I believe you can go back very quickly to Mark chapter 4 and understand suffering in a new light. The sower sows the word, and these are they by the wayside. Satan comes immediately to steal the word which is sown. Satan's after the word. You suffer because you're doing the things that God told you to do. If you follow along with Peter, you can go back to the to Daniel. Go back in the Old Testament. If you remember in Matthew chapter thirteen, he said, Many righteous many righteous men from from the old, wanted to see the things you see and hear the things you hear, but they don't hear it. So hear ye the parable of the sower. Now, you go back in Daniel's case, God did another amazing miracle. I don't know which is more of amazing, to tell somebody what their dream was and interpret it or feed 5,000 people from a sack lunch. I couldn't do either one right now. I'd like to be able to, but I couldn't do either one right now. And I doubt that you know anybody that could either. But at the same time, he said the Son of Man must suffer. Why did Jesus suffer? Well, I would submit to you that the reason that he suffered was because he did what God told him to do. He knew what the plan was. Now, um, I go back to it, and we'll, we'll cover this later uh, in, in detail. We'll go through the parable of the sower, and you'll see people out in the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, a lot of religious doctrine, again, I'm telling you, religious doctrine will tell you that uh, God wants you to suffer. In fact, when I was a kid, I told you I was in reform school. When I was in reform school, I'd gotten a lot of trouble. And also, I'd had some, some horrible things happen to me uh, through sexual abuse from both men and women in, um, in military school and, and public school and so forth. And um, uh, it ended up, I ended up in jail. I ended up in reform school. I ended up in mental hospitals. I ended up in jail. I was just uh, everywhere. Because things, <laughs> things weren't working on my behalf. Let's just say the plan that I had at 15 wasn't working. And um, so when I get saved, later on, and when people heard my testimony, they'd tell me that things like, you better get straightened up, boy, or God's going to jerk the slack right out of you because, uh, you know, when are you going to learn? God's trying to teach you something. Well, I submit to you that Satan's not the teacher of the church. The Holy Spirit is. And what I found out was the more I pushed on the Word, the more I studied the Word, the more I went after God's Word, the more trouble I got into. And it wasn't because God wanted me to. It's because Satan's trying to steal the Word. He has to steal that word. Now, he couldn't get it from Jesus. 
He went after Jesus tooth and toenail. And you see that in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke at the end of chapter 4. It says, he waited until he had a better time. Well, he never found a better time to go after Jesus. So, uh, I want you to think about that. I'll go back and read Mark 4 and ask yourself, why does God want you to suffer? It's not because He's trying to teach you something. It's He may use it. But I would suggest to you that somewhere along the line, He's told you to do something, and you're trying to move in that direction, and Satan's got to stop you, and he's got to steal that Word. If he can steal the Word, he can steal your joy, he can steal what God wants you to do. So... Uh, We've got a couple more verses in there, but we'll, we'll, we'll touch base on them the next time. So, Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I ask You to anoint it, Father. Help us to hear You clearly. Help us to move in the power of Your Word and not worry about the devil. We thank You for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time. He gave His only Son who became the sacrifice.